Well, good morning, church family, and um, he is risen. Let's do that again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. He is. So in Petrosina Square, New York City, Petrosina Square is a park in New York City, and earlier this year, some students uh, did a little day-long experiment. They set up a chalkboard in Petrosina Square, New York City, and uh, they gave the title of this chalkboard, Write Your Regret Here. Write Your Biggest Regret Here. And they had colored chalk available, and they had uh, actually a, a video camera seeing who might respond to anybody who wanted to come on uh, just write their biggest regret on the chalkboard. And they were really astounded by what happened that day. Uh, people began to write their regrets. Some said that they regretted uh, not spending more time with their family. Uh, not applying to med school, um, not taking that risk, not speaking up, um, not being a better husband. Um, Someone regretted not going to Montana. (laughs) Uh, I mean, pretty soon the chalkboard was just covered, smothered with these one-sentence stories of regret. Different stories, different backgrounds, different people. But this is what they found out. They found out that although these stories were different, there was one thing in common. One thing in common. Every one of those stories, or almost all of those stories, the common word in that phrase was the word not. Not. Opportunities not taken. Conversations not had. Relationships not reconciled. Uh, Sad stories. Regretful stories. Stories with the word not in them. Um, But then something happened that just totally changed the mood of that park. What they did was, um, after those participants wrote their one phrase, regret, they changed the title of the chalkboard and they handed an eraser to those participants. And on the title of the chalkboard, it said, Clean Slate. And they invited those participants to erase those regrets. And it was like a cloud had been lifted. And the sun came out. And one uh, woman remarked, I feel hope. I feel that now there are possibilities. Hope and possibilities. I don't know what you would put on that chalkboard, but what I want to give you today is a clean slate of possibilities, a clean slate of hope, a true story of hope. 
people don't, people don't live where they put their love, church. They don't. People live where they put their hope. And I want to tell you where you can put your hope today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. And you'll find Luke chapter 24 on page 885 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you would like a copy, please take the copy that's in the pouch in front of you and and, uh, put your name on it and take it home and uh, please receive it as a gift from this church family. And I want you to consider these verses. I want you to consider this, this true story of hope In Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Footnote says, and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From on high, this is God's word. They could not get back to Jerusalem fast enough from Emmaus. And once they got into Jerusalem, they found that house and that upper room where the disciples were, and they rapped on the door, and when let in, they screeched, we've seen him, he's alive, he's alive, Jesus is alive, to which the disciples said, what, what are you talking about? It had been that kind of a day. Uh, What, what are you talking about? Kind of a day. But there they were, in that room, telling the disciples that they had experienced the risen, living Christ. Oh, not at first now. Not at first, they were on their way home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were talking with one another, and their faces were droopy, and they were depressed, and and they were just, it was just cloudy, a 
tropical depression had set over them. And, and then all of a sudden, this stranger had caught up with them and asked them, why are you so sad? Why are your faces so downcast? Why are you so droopy? And Cleopas, one of the disciples there in that upper room, had, had said that he said, well, are you the only one who hasn't been in Jerusalem to hear the events concerning Jesus of Nazareth? prophet mighty in word and deed who was unjustly executed by Pontius Pilate and the Romans. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, had hoped. And then this stranger all of a sudden became this like scholar as he began to explain to Cleopas and his wife from all of the scriptures the truth that God's Messiah, the Christ, from Moses, the law, Psalms, the prophets, the writings, all of the Hebrew scriptures pointed through this suffering servant that the Messiah would suffer before entering into his glory. And, and the disciples, would, the, Cleopas and his wife, were just, they were just astounded by this. And the next thing they knew, they were at Emmaus, and they were at the front steps of their home, and they said to this stranger scholar, they said, would, would come, come in. No, no, I'm heading on. No, no, really, we want you to come in. Well, okay. And they had dinner together, and, and although the stranger scholar, mysterious person was a guest He then became the host as he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and handed it to Cleopas and his wife. And when he handed it to them, they looked and they saw Jesus. It's Jesus. Their hearts were burning while he was explaining all about himself in the Hebrew scriptures. And so they bolted out that house and raced to Jerusalem to tell the disciples about this amazing experience that they had had with the resurrected living Christ. And that's what Luke is getting at when he says in verse 36, and as they were talking about these things, the things that had happened on the Emmaus Road that Cleopas and his wife had had experienced, and, and Luke goes on, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, And said to them, peace to you. There he was, standing there, the living Lord himself. Peace to you. Oh, it was more than just a first century type of greeting, you know. That's how they greeted people back then. If this had taken place in Oklahoma, he'd have said, howdy. But it would have been more than just that, you know. Peace to you is more than just a greeting. Peace to you is an echo from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, 7. How blessed upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who speaks peace, who announces peace, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your To speak peace to you is to say, your God reigns. Not Caesar, not Rome, 
not the legions, not Pontius Pilate. Your God reigns. And the disciples had absolutely no category to put this experience in. I mean, did their, in their mindset, the, I mean, God's Messiah was going to be a military conqueror. God's Messiah was going to be some sort of a Hebrew Alexander the Great, a kind of a Hebrew version of Augustus Caesar, a, a, a military general who would conquer the infidels and expand Israel's empire, even beyond Rome or Greece or Babylon. Uh, they had no mindset that God's Messiah would actually be a suffering servant. And so when they saw God's Messiah crucified, the commanding general suffering, a slave's death. They, they, just didn't, they just did not have any category to put this in. And yet, there he is, standing there. And, and so, no wonder, verse 37 says, they were startled and, and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. Jesus is so patient. He says, why are you so afraid? It's me. It's me. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he showed him his hands and he showed him his feet. Come on, give me a hug. I'm here. It is me. It's I. I mean, they, they had, they, they'd never seen a glorified body before. A, 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 it was Jesus, but yet it was a kind of, it was Jesus, but it was something more. It was uh, not just physical, it was transphysical. It was beyond all they could have ever imagined. Jesus is so patient. He's going, you got anything to eat? Uh, you got any leftovers? What's that over there? A broiled fish. Oh, and some honeycomb. Go have some. I want something. Verse 42 They gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate before them. Now, what's going on here? You know, we're we're an intelligent congregation. We live in a university community. I mean... Someone may be here thinking, Balding us, do you really believe that? I mean, God, I mean, this, 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 this is just a parable. This is just symbolic of something, right? Really? Well, I wonder what it would be. I mean, what would the broiled fish stand for? What, what's, what's the message behind that? Eat less red meat. Is that really what we're learning here in these verses? It is a fair question. It is a fair question. Did this really happen? It is a, it is a fair question. And, and so how I would answer that is to ask this question. And the question is, is this. What was Luke's intent? Luke, the author of this gospel, what's his intent? What's his aim? What's his objective? What's the author's intent? Well, we already know the answer to that question because Luke tells us his intent All the way at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says at the very beginning of his gospel, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So Luke is writing to a person named Theophilus. Theophilus. Most honorable Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus was most likely his Christian name. Theophilus comes from two words. Thea, God, Philus, lover, lover of God. It was his Christian name. When he became a Christian, they gave him that name. And he's likely a very influential, uh, powerful person in the Roman Empire because of the title most honorable most honorable Theophilus. So he'd become a Christian, and so Luke is writing, why? Verse 4, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. That is Luke's intent. That's his aim. He wants to strengthen the faith of this new believer, Theophilus. And that explains the kind of detail that we would see in chapter 24, like broiled fish. What is that? That didn't occur in vision or spiritual literature in the first century. That's not how you write in that way. What is that then? That's an eyewitness detail. Honeycomb, that's an eyewitness detail. And then there are names. You see the names that are peppered throughout uh, Luke 24. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Joanna. There's Mary, the mother of James. And the other women, there's Cleopas. You see those are names. Those are like footnotes. That's research. Luke is saying, go fact check me. Go find out for yourselves. Ask these people. They're still alive. They'll tell you what was experienced there. That's what Luke is trying to do. And so... Luke is saying Christianity is a fact-based faith. Faith is never a leap in the dark. Faith is rather a decision based on evidence. And my goodness, Luke lays the evidence out for us. The evidence of Christianity. Jesus died. That's a fact. That's irrefutable. Christians and non-Christians agree on that. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb where everybody knew where that tomb was, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Nobody disputes that historical fact. Jesus was in that tomb. On the third day of Jesus' death, the tomb was empty. Nobody disputes that. Fact number four, individuals, groups, later the apostle Paul would say 500 people, the amount of people in this room right here, experienced The risen bodily Christ, alive, speaking, breathing, standing. That's a fact. And then the fact of changed lives. These terrified, startled disciples became fearless and relentless. As over the next 30 years, the message of the gospel spread throughout the world. The 30 years, think about that for just a minute. 30 years ago. 30 years ago, Ronald Reagan was president. Anybody remember that? Am I the only one to remember that? Okay. So, in, so 30 years ago, from, from that time, 
The gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, a landmass comparable to the landmass of the continental United States. In just 30 years, the world had heard about this risen Christ. And back then, there was no internet, no smartphones, no cell phones. It was word of mouth as gospel communities began to emerge throughout these leading cities. That's what Luke is getting at right here. My goodness. So where are you putting your hope? How is all of this possible? Luke tells us three days after being not mostly dead, but altogether dead, absolutely dead, crucified dead, at the hands of professional killers, Jesus was found to be not mostly alive, but completely and altogether alive. The tomb could not hold the living, breathing, standing, fish-eating, honeycomb-consuming, resurrected Son of God, the one who claimed to be God, who knew no sin, whose enemies unjustly executed him, that same Jesus is standing right there, right in front of their face. They've seen him chew, and that honey comes dripping down the side of his mouth. There he is. We saw him, this same Jesus. Christ's resurrected life is connected to my hope. Christ's resurrected life is connected to my hope. Church family, if Jesus lives, we will live. God secured your hope when he raised his son. Your hope is as alive as Jesus. And here's where it gets personal. Someone once told me, Randy, um, the test The test of your religious belief is really just this one question. Does it play in the cancer ward? You know, and you find yourself in that waiting room of uncertainty, right? And you're waiting for those tests and you wonder. And you start asking the big what if. And it just feels like your life is smothered by a question mark. What if? What if it's more severe than they initially think it to be? What if it's incurable? What if it spreads? What if, what if, what if, what if? And it's very easy to be distracted and anxious and worried by that what if question. But these verses tell me in no uncertain terms that the empty tomb answers what if. The empty tomb is the greatest answer to what if. That's why the Apostle Paul said, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we live or die, we will be with him. And when I am tempted to judge the goodness of God based on the health of of my body, these verses tell me, don't look at your body, look at his body. He is alive. He is risen. And what God has done to his son, he will one day do to you. Now, do you believe that or not? That's the question. 
There it is. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? Oh, but there's more. There's more. After Jesus had finished the fish, (laughs) after he'd gotten the honeycomb wax out of his teeth, right? That wasn't in the footnote, but. Well, then he led a Bible study. Just like the one he'd done on the Emmaus Road, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he once again went over with the disciples how God's plan from Moses and the law and the prophets orbited around his death and burial and resurrection. And it says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Do you understand that? So Christianity connects with the mind, with the intellect, with reason, with understanding. His death, burial, and resurrection prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures all display the power of sacrificial, self-giving love. Sacrificial, self-giving love. And then Jesus said, now you go do that. I want you to go do that now and I'm gonna be with you. And you are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name. And don't just blow by those words. I know they, they're churchy words, right? Repentance and forgiveness. But here's what they mean. See, what's the opposite of repentance? The opposite of repentance is arrogance. Because repentance means the ability to change your mind. The humility to change your mind. Repentance means that. Its opposite is arrogance. And forgiveness, what's the opposite of forgiveness? Vengeance, scorekeeping. So Jesus says repentance and forgiveness replace arrogance and vengeance. And our world has tried arrogance and vengeance. And it just don't work. But now there's a new way. The way of humility and love and hope. And some harumph this. And some think repentance and forgiveness are as unthinkable as the resurrection And that's the point. Welcome to the new world brought about by the risen king. It's a world of repentance and forgiveness to all nations. You see that? All nations. Hey, if you don't like racial diversity, you're not going to like heaven. Jesus says, You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. So this is your, a witness is an identity before it's an activity. You're witnesses of these things. And here's where it gets good. Think about who these witnesses were. Well, for the most part, they were the ones who denied him. They were the ones who betrayed him. They were the ones who deserted him. That's who the witnesses were. And now they're ashamed and embarrassed and fearful and startled. But what does Jesus do? He greets them. He takes initiative with them. He 
tells them not to be afraid. He assures them. He offers hope to them. And his hope says this, your death is not final and your failures are not fatal. Your failures are not fatal. Remember that blackboard that I told you about earlier in Petrosina Square? See, here's the truth of the matter is, you can't erase your regrets. You can't. But there is one who can. And he is why we gather. And so for the sake of those who feel that their past or their mistakes or their brokenness or their history have somehow disqualified them or stained them or put them in a consolation life bracket system. Look at these verses in Luke 24. Look at these people. The only people God works with are broken people. That's all there are. There are only broken people at Windsor Road Christian Church And your pastor is broken too. What Jesus wants to do though is to take my brokenness and heal it. And having healed it, he wants my healed life to radiate hope in him. So he calls us not only to live in the hope of his resurrection, but he calls us to be agents of hope. Which means tomorrow morning, I enter the office, I enter the cubicle, I enter the classroom, I enter the clinic, the fire station, the police cruiser, the warehouse, as an agent of hope. Because hope is not just about the life to come. Hope is about bringing the life to come into this life right now. Richard Dostrom has written an excellent book called Colors of Hope. He's a pastor and author. This is what he says. Each of us is made by God with specific creative capacities. God invites us to use those capacities to bless others. And then he says this. I like the way he put this. To paint colors of hope and beauty on the canvas of our broken world. There it is. To paint colors of hope on the canvas of our broken world. Now there's a mission, huh? He says, when this happens, hospitals are built, wells are dug, women are freed from sexual slavery, warring tribes reconcile and forgive, the office is more pleasant, people are empowered, neighbors are loved and served, parties are thrown, forests are restored, art is created, children are taught, schools are built, the elderly are dignified, cars are repaired, and the plumbing gets fixed. Jesus, our hope, calls us to be agents of hope. Now, listen, what if today, I mean starting now, we left this campus fully convinced that because Jesus lives, we live. And because Jesus lives, we have a gift to share, the gift of hope. That's why Luke 24 ends with such expectation. Something's going to happen here. There's anticipation. The best is yet to come. And they came to that rock-solid conviction not because of a myth. They came to that rock-solid conviction because Jesus 
promised his followers that when they put their hope in him, they will not only have their soul quenched with living water, but according to the gospel of John, each of them will be a well of water springing up, quenching the thirsts of others. Imagine that, you going where God has put you, not only with flooded with so much water that your soul is quenched, but that you become a well of living water springing up to eternal life. How's that happen? It happened because a dead guy was raised and we saw him and we believe him. And after that, They didn't sit around anymore in the presence of a question mark. Instead, they told the truth about what they had seen and heard. Clean slate. No regrets. Hope. Hope. Church family, we don't live where we put our love. We live where we put Our hope. Where are you putting your hope today? In whom are you putting your hope? Oh, Luke tells us. Luke tells us over and over and over again. Jesus, 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 Jesus. He is risen. And the church said, he is risen indeed.